All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 5. Now, as you're on your way there, I want to remind you what we are doing. We are almost done with the book of Ephesians, but our whole goal for 2013 is to look at the entire life of of the church of Ephesus. And so we originally started in the book of Acts, right? And we saw how uh, Paul comes to the city of Ephesus, shares the gospel, the church has started. That was all the content there. Then we moved into the book of Ephesians that reminds us of who we are in Christ, what the good news of Jesus has done, how it's transformed us, shaped us, empowered us, and mobilized us to a cause, right? And so that's what Ephesians is doing. Then we're going to take a little bit of a break this summer, uh, come back to it, Probably in August, we'll look at 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy, eventually the book of Revelation chapter 2. All of that to look at how the gospel penetrates a culture over a long swath of time. And when we think about the church of Ephesus and the city of Ephesus, what's helpful is to understand that that city is not terribly different than the larger context that we live in of the greater Seattle area, right? We live in Seattle and it's known for trade and it's known for diversity and it's known for sports and theater and all these sorts of things. And the same was true of the city of Ephesus. And when you have that kind of prosperity and opportunity, uh, that breeds not only the ability for recreational things like sports and theater, but it also breeds some ill or unhealthy things as well. It just kind of comes in the context of it. And so when we think about Ephesus, uh, some of the realities tethered to their their sort of exploits and, and uh, kind of rights of... Uh, kind of social dynamic, uh, there was also things like a lot of rampant sexuality and perversion that really infested the city. Another thing that was true to the city was uh, you have to have a lot of people to subsidize all of that activity, and with that, there was a massive slave trade there in Ephesus. In fact, that particular city was the capital city of slavery for the entire Roman Empire. I mean, this was vast, this was an industry, this was a trademark of the city. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he knows that in that church there are both a lot of slaves and a lot of slave owners and masters. Both are in the church together, and he wants to speak to both of those dynamics equally within the context of the church, right? That's the whole idea behind this passage, right? So he gets into it by saying in verse 5, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters, right? This is where Paul starts with this prolific reality there in the city of Ephesus. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second because there is a dilemma behind just reading that verse, Right? Just that little section right there creates a problem for us that in a lot of ways, before I can unpack the text before us, I have to unpack our presuppositions or assumptions regarding this text, in particular as it plays out in the realm of slavery. Right? Because whether we like it or not, we all are predisposed to seeing that word bondservant or slave or master And from that, reading into our context here in the passage, a vision that isn't accurate of what Paul was actually dealing with or the circumstance of his day. Now, this comes because of this thing that in biblical interpretation we call eisegesis. For all of you theological minds out there that love fancy, funky words, this is one of them right here. So, typically when we read our Bible, what we're called to do is to use exegesis. This is what we learn when we go to Bible college and seminary. Exegesis literally means to lift off of the page, to read what the page is telling us. It informs me of its information. That's exegesis. So it just it's lifted out of the scriptures. Eisegesis is where I come to a passage and I read into the passage my predisposition, my culture, my environment, my worldview, my whatever else, and I make the Bible say something based on my preconceived notion of an idea. That is eisegesis. Eisegesis is bad. Exegesis is good. Now, with all that said, it pertains to this passage in a very unique way, and that is there is a tendency... For us to read this passage and think about American history as the model of slavery. 
We'll say uh, what happened throughout the Americas and then what became unique to the South is the exact same type of slavery that Paul is dealing with. The same atrocities, the same lack of humanity, the same sense of enslavement and enshackling and the the depriving of human spirit and, and, and really even personhood, that that was the same problem as Rome. And that is misinformation. It isn't accurate to say what happened in the United States is true to what we're reading in the New Testament. And we have to kind of separate that out a little bit. Because here's what I find with this passage on slavery. And any time the Bible, particularly the New Testament, speaks about slavery, that becomes an argument to other arguments. All right, The topic of slavery in the Bible becomes this leveraging point for other cultural discussions today. So, let me give you a quick example. Um, You might be talking with somebody about sexuality in the modern climate as opposed to what the Bible talks about, or you might be talking about gender roles in the Bible versus gender roles today, and people start to debate with you, like, I don't know if the Bible's true on that, I don't know if I agree with the Bible, because the Bible also endorsed slavery, and clearly the Bible got that wrong. So if the Bible got slavery wrong, maybe it has gender roles wrong, maybe it has sexuality wrong, because, again, the New Testament writes they missed the boat on that slavery thing because they got behind it and promoted slavery. That's sort of the argument. So if it promotes slavery uh, and it was wrong, maybe other things that it promotes are equally wrong, right? That's sort of the argument that we face. And so I, I, I want to kind of deal with all of that, which is weird. This is not the way I, I thought this message was going to unfold. I, I approached this text one way. And kind of looking at this, I realized, wow, man, this topic gets used in a lot of other ways. And I think it teaches us some things sort of indirectly that we need to tackle. So what you're going to feel like is a 30-minute introduction is a part of the message. It's just going to feel like an introduction, all right? So, um, but it's really a part of the message. So don't be like, wow, this introduction's taking forever. It's the message, all right? Um, I'll help you right here, all right? And so what I want to do is deal with four things that pertain to this generalized slavery issue, how it bleeds into some principles for us, and then we'll finally uh, wrap up our actual passage at the end and kind of tie it all into a nice little neat bow. Now, the first thing I want to deal with is the Bible, and I, I want to deal with the Bible and the issue of slavery very directly, all right? Directly. So we go, all right, what is the direct thing that the Bible speaks of when it comes to the topic of slavery? And I return again to the criticism. The criticism that people leverage is that the Bible condones slavery. If you've ever sat in a college class, ever had a debate with friends that aren't Christians, whatever else, they'll all say the Bible condoned slavery. Here's the reality. The Bible never condones slavery. It equally never condemns slavery. Either condones or condemns. Here's what the Bible does. It regulates the topic of slavery, masters and slaves. That's what it does. It brings regulation. Now, there's a reason for that, though. If you go, well, man, there is no room to regulate slavery. Well, it depends. If you're thinking about slavery in the United States 200 years ago, you're right. There's not a lot of room for trying to regulate that in the same way as slavery in the Roman Empire. So let me try to help you understand the difference between our historical slavery here in our country and slavery to the Roman Empire. In our country, when this was first enacted, uh, slavery was very much revolving around race. So it was whites enslaving blacks. Right? It was a racial issue. It continues this day as sort of a racial issue because it was related to color, it was related to where you would come from in the world. And so again, the white was seeking to oppress the black. That is our history. In the Roman Empire, it had very little to do with color. You could be white, you could be tan, you could be black, you could be whatever and be a slave or be a master, right? You could be either or because it had nothing to do with your race. It had everything to do with your economic status. If you were poor, you're probably going to be a slave. If you had money, you're probably going to be a master. It's economic. It's not racial. That's the first thing to understand as the difference. The second thing to understand was how one became a slave in the United States versus the Roman Empire. Here... Here you are, you're in Africa, you're doing your own thing, minding your own business, living your life, and suddenly somebody takes you forcibly from your home, sells you to a trader, gives you to a trader, whatever it is, and you're hauled off to another country and you're forced into labor, automatic. It's just a forced taking and putting in another context and you're a slave. In the Roman Empire, very different, lots of ways you could become a slave. Some of it was similar to what I just described. 
In other words, you're minding your own business, you live in a country, suddenly another country invades your country, that country whoops your country, your country loses, and you're now a spoil of war. So you become from that somebody servant or somebody slave. Your country lost, and now you are a slave. So some people, that's how they became a slave in Rome. Others, they were born into it, right? So maybe your father, their country lost, he becomes a slave, you're born to your father, you're now a slave in that household. That's another way you become a slave. A third way, a very common way, perhaps the most common way to become a slave in this particular period, is you sold yourself into slavery. In other words, you could not provide for your family or maybe you had taken on debts or there's something you needed to accomplish so you're going to go ahead and pay back a master by saying I'm going to give you X amount of years of my life and so you sold yourself into that slavery. So you, it was equitable for you, it was efficient for a master to go ahead and buy you because you're selling yourself into it and so that was the most common way somebody was a slave. They volunteered themselves to that for some level of profit or income or aid. And that's valuable to understand because, again, in a culture where there aren't a lot of opportunities, unless you have money, it was a great way to have survival, to provide for your family, that kind of thing. So that was the most common way one became a slave throughout the Roman Empire. And then the last one, and this is one that people sometimes overlook, though the history is amazing on it, uh, some people were rescued into slavery. In other words, in the Roman Empire, uh, during this particular period, uh, it was completely legal to uh, engage in infanticide. So if a family has a child, they don't want the child. If the child is a newborn, all you do, I think it was up to about six months of age, all you do is you leave the child out on the front porch of the house and you let the child die to the elements. And if you did that, there was no law against you. You were totally fine. It was your right as a Roman to be able to do that. And so Roman families that didn't want their newborns would just leave them to the elements, but then other people would see these children, rescue them, and make them their eventual servants. Right? So they would feed them, raise them, and when they were old enough, they became servants to the house. A lot of times, the sort of adopted type servants. So that's your context for slavery in the Roman Empire. Additionally, things to, to know that's different between our history and their history. Our history, if you were a slave, you were just property. You couldn't have property. Slaves in the Roman Empire, they could have property, and they could even have slaves themselves as slaves. That's the kind of property they could have, Right? A slave in our history looked very much like a slave. A slave in Roman history, you couldn't even tell if they were a slave when you were in the marketplace. They could dress a certain way, they could have their own personality, that kind of thing. It was very, very different. All right? So you understand that context. The other thing that's interesting to keep in mind is that almost no one in the empire died a slave. Right? That's an assumption we make. Everybody wants you're in slavery, you never get out of slavery. No, the average age of leaving slavery in the Roman Empire was 30 years old. Most people freed themselves through paying their debts off or whatever else, buying their freedom. Others were finally let go by masters because they felt that their debt was paid, that kind of thing. So most people didn't die a slave. Most people were released from their slavery at a pretty young age comparatively. And after they were released, there was no stigma, there was no racial bias because it wasn't rooted in color. It was rooted in economy. Now, I say all of that because I think it's super valuable to understand that context and then you understand why the Bible neither condemns nor condones, but it regulates. Because while it's true that there were times where there are masters that were brutal, there was other times where masters were benevolent. And there was other times where masters afforded people the opportunity for a better standard of living than they would ever be able to manage on their own. And still there were some masters that actually saved people from death by taking them in, raising them up, feeding them, clothing them, and giving them an opportunity for a different life. So when you look at all of that and you understand that, now you understand why if Paul or Jesus or whomever rolled in and said, slavery is unilaterally wrong and today is the day of emancipation, everybody's free, go and be free, you would have a massive economic and life shift throughout that culture. It'd be no different than if tomorrow somebody rose up and they were able to push through the idea that, you know what, all debts are paid. And all opportunities for borrowing are gone because debt enslaves, borrowing enslaves. So let's do everybody a favor. If you owe anything, you don't owe anything anymore. Right? Wouldn't that be great? We go, yeah, I would love to not owe anything anymore. But it would also be, but you also can't borrow anymore. That's gone too. And if you loan to somebody, you're just out of luck. Good luck to you on that. It's all done so everybody's free. 
If we did that, our country would be in chaos. It wouldn't even be benevolent at that point. It would probably be more destructive than it would be benevolent. Well, that's what the New Testament writers also know. In wisdom, they know that their job, their mission, their focus isn't to say, this is wrong, be done with it, but to regulate a reality that can be sometimes destructive and sometimes healthy for the culture. Frankly, I don't think that's any different than sometimes what we face. We live in a capitalistic society, right? Capitalism can be a great thing for benevolence and generosity and opportunity and upward mobility and all of that. But capitalism can also be a very dark thing that breeds all sorts of other problems. Like, you know what? Some of the biggest money makers are gambling and alcohol and pornography and all the things that they don't care if you become enslaved to it as long as they make their money. It doesn't bother them, right? Or if we're chasing the almighty dollar or we're never satisfied unless we have more. That's the dark side of something that can be a good thing. It's no different. It's no different. Aside from that, what is interesting is the New Testament speaks of slave traders. And there, in 1 Timothy 1.10, it condemns them. The slave trader is unholy. The slave trader is evil. Paul says that himself. But he regulates this practice. I think another thing to keep in mind just for us when we think, well, we live in the 21st century, I'm not a slave, all right? Or I'm not a master. I have kids. They're slaves. I guess I'm a master. Um, now, you know, I'm not a master. I'm not a slave. Uh, the reality is, you know what? Slavery will always exist. Having masters will always exist. And I don't just mean about sex trafficking and, you know, things in other countries. I mean in our own culture we often find ourselves enslaved to masters. The masters are just different. The masters are now things like commercials and contracts, right? That say things like, you know what, uh, you know, you're, you're just not happy unless you have, and so you go to have, and from that you get debt or idols, or you start to get all these bills that you have to maintain, and what happens? You're now enslaved to a master, right? Maybe you're enslaved to addictions or anxieties or depression or fear, enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to a dead-end job that you would love to quit, but you can't quit because you've got to keep all the bills going. And Slavery. right? We all face master slavery issues no matter what. And in this text, it will address some of those things. It doesn't address everything, and it doesn't mean that this text will apply to all of the master-slave issues, but it is valuable for us to understand the situation in context so we understand that it regulates certain things and speaks to those regulations in certain ways. Not by way of new laws, but by way of wisdom. See, in our culture, we go, we've got to have laws, got to have laws, got to have laws. The New Testament is so good because it brings wisdom. How do you deal with reality in such a way that it will truly be wise to the big picture. Now, some at this point may say, you know what, Matt, that's all really nice, but I'm not satisfied yet. Right? It doesn't really address the issue as much as I want. The Bible should just say it's wrong. It's wrong. And I think when we say that, again, we're kind of imposing the idea that slavery would always be um, cruel or mean. And so we think, well, if it's always cruel and mean, then slavery would always be wrong. Well, slavery wasn't always cruel and mean, but if in the event would be, does the Bible speak to that issue? Well, sure. In that sense, it speaks to slavery indirectly because what does the Bible tell us, right? The Bible tells us some very foundational things. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Mark chapter 12. It says, treat others as you would want to be treated. Matthew 7, 12. It says, consider others better than yourself. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. So when we say, well, what does the Bible say about how to treat people? It says, this is how you treat people. It doesn't matter if you're a master or you're a servant. It doesn't matter if you're white or black, rich or poor. It doesn't matter any of that. What, it ma- what matters here is what it says. is, man, you treat people with dignity, humanity, and respect because everybody bears the image of God, whether they acknowledge that or they don't. Right? That's what we do. So that is just true. So when somebody says, oh man, the Bible, it it allows, it doesn't allow for mistreatment, it doesn't allow for abuse, it allows for respect and commands that. Commands care. Commands dignity. So the next time you're having a discussion with somebody that wants to leverage New Testament slavery as an argument to challenge all sorts of other moral issues, just take them back to this and say, man, here's the bottom line. The Bible would never say in the New Testament setting that slavery was condoned and can be a group of people mistreated. On the contrary, it says something very different. Very different. I think this topic, though, 
And this is where I started to kind of go this week, surprisingly. I, I, I think it deals with something that, that now begins to deal with us more. For a second, we forget the master-slave issue. We think about something that kind of lies behind this. And when I get into this, I want to be perfectly honest, because I've been lying up to this point, apparently. Um, like, what's that? It's the stupidest statement, man. I want to be honest, finally. Um, I want to be candid. How about that? Uh, where we're going is a little bit unpopular. It's unpopular. It's unpopular because of our climate context and culture, and it deals with the Bible and personal injustice. Right? Because when you really look at the slave master issue, when you dig it down more, what you're looking at is a problem of injustice. You're saying, well, well, what do we do with that injustice? How do we respond to injustice? And what does that look like for my life, this issue of injustice? And it doesn't matter if that injustice is being a Roman slave or if it's being an African-American slave in the United States, if it's injustice from a boss or a teacher or a parent or a child or a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, an adversary, the IRS, whomever right? How do we address injustice? Because that that goes deeper. And let me define injustice. It's real simple. To be treated in a way that isn't just. Magical, right? It's all it means. A sense of unfair treatment. Unfair treatment. So what do we do in that context? And I want to be clear about this too. Um, There's different levels of injustice. There's injustice that is real and serious, right? That's true. And then there's injustice that's real, but it's sort of benign, right? Your life isn't at risk, those kinds of things. It's real, but it's benign. There's another form of injustice that is perceived and serious, right? You sense, oh man, if that's true, that is wrong. Can't prove it, but it's perceived. And then there's a fourth type, which is perceived and benign. right? And that usually perceived and benign injustice magnifies to real and serious with a friend over coffee or wine. So, what I mean by that is that most of us, whether we want to admit it or not, the injustice we sense in life is perceived and benign. Right, But when we get together with a friend or whatever, oh, do you know what they did? Oh, yeah, she did that. You know she did that. You know, whatever it is, right? Oh, my boss, he's doing this and this and this. Yeah, your boss is an idiot. Oh, he's an idiot. I can do my job better than that idiot, right? All of those things, almost without fail, are perceived and benign, magnified to real and serious. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a time for real and serious. We might face those, but most of us don't face those. Most of the time, it's something that we want to complain about, something that we feel has been done to us, that we feel wronged by. It's our perceptions or speculations or assumptions or whatever it is. It's just often not real. We just elevate it into real status, right? That's fundamentally the problem. So, that's what we mostly face. But let's say for a minute, for the sake of argument, that every injustice we face in life is real and serious. Let's go to, man, let's go right up to the top of the thermometer. Bam! Real, serious. What does the Bible say to do in the face of real and serious injustice? Well, I can think of three pretty profound things. The first, rejoice. Rejoice. There's this great passage in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, man, you know what? They're going to follow me. Uh, they're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. They're going to speak ill of you. They're going to kind of hunt you down. And when that happens, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. In fact, he says there, leap for joy. So when we face injustice, what does the Bible say? Rejoice. Another thing I can think of, second thing, the Bible says in the face of injustice, endure. Endure. Right? Romans chapter 5, it talks about the fact that endurance shapes our character. Hebrews chapter 12, it says we're to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So when we start going, oh, but they're not fair. Oh, that isn't right. Oh, that isn't kind. Oh, that isn't nice. Oh, they're not handling me well. Oh, I think it should be different. Oh, I think they're out of place. What would the Bible say? Rejoice. Endure. That's how we respond to injustice. And then the third thing would be maintain. Maintain. Maintain love for a friend or an enemy. Right? 
Maintain faith toward God. Maintain hope that God will vindicate and he will release you from those challenges. Maintain the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control. All of it. Maintain those dispositions and that heart and that pliability unto God in the face of injustice. That's what the Bible would tell us to do. So when you think about a slave in the New Testament in a condition of injustice, here's what the Bible would tell the slave to do. What does the Bible tell us to do in a season where we might find injustice in our life? Here's what the Bible would tell us to do. Now here's what we end up doing. We end up doing things like, um, they can't treat me like this, right? You ever said that? They can't treat me like this. I'm like, um, yeah, they can. They did. Um, you can say it. They can still do it, right? Or better yet, what we do in the face of that is we say, I refuse to be treated like this. And then we escalate, right? You're going to treat me like this. And I can treat you like this. And because you uh, drew first blood, now I am free to like lop off your head. So we just go on an all-out campaign, right? Because we have been treated wrong. Here's the crazy thing. I cannot think anywhere. I've read the Bible a lot of times, the New Testament tons of times, and I cannot think anywhere where following Jesus was ever described as a call to be treated well. I, For the life of me, I, last time I checked, every time I read Jesus, he's like, hey, follow me, you're going to be treated bad. Follow me, you're going to hate you. Follow me, you'll find no justice in life. Right? I mean, isn't really that more the message of Jesus? It's like, follow me, and you're going to feel like a cop in a biker bar. That's what you're going to feel like. You're going to feel out of place, like they're all looking at you like, oh, when do we jump him? You know? That's how it's going to feel. That's how it's going to play. That's how it's going to be. Because, again, you were born into a world that is not just. And if we're to be different, right? The gospel call into our life is to be different than the average. What's the average? The average is, uh, you're not just, so I can be unjust back, calling it justness. For the Christian life, it's different. And we go, in the face of injustice, we rejoice, we endure, we maintain. Now, I think this drills one step deeper. This is where it gets really uncomfortable for some of us. And it has to do with the Bible and rights versus responsibilities. Rights versus responsibilities is a huge issue. And let me help illustrate this. Um, For, I think, probably everybody in this room that knows Jesus for sure, uh, there are two two documents that are dear to us. Uh, The first is our Bible. It's dear to us. The second is one that we have for our kids. It's the Constitution. Right? Two documents we hold dear. Two documents, which, by the way, I'm not saying anything bad about either one of these. These are two documents we hold dear. Let me describe the fundamental difference between these two documents. This one is an advocate for your rights. This one is an advocate for your responsibilities. Right? That is the foundational difference between the two. Rights, responsibilities. Now, somebody could say, well, with rights come responsibilities. But if you read this, it really doesn't describe your responsibilities. It describes your rights. You go into the Bill of Rights, it describes your rights, not as much your responsibilities. This one, on the other hand, pretty much says, you don't really have rights. You just have a lot of responsibilities. You have the right to be responsible. That's what it says. Right? Now, now let me describe why this gets a little more tricky. There are times in our life where we feel our rights impinged, Right? squeezed, challenged, whatever. And then the Bible says, well, here's your responsibility in the face of your rights being challenged, but there's a tendency for us to go, well, let me just put this away so I can fight for my rights. I I know this calls me to handle things different, but it's not going to be as effective as if I fight for my rights. Now, am I saying anything bad about this at all? No. Right? If anybody goes out and says, Matt was beating up on the Constitution, right? Well, I can't force you to do anything. It's not my right, but be responsible. All right? So, right? So, I'm not saying anything bad about this. What I'm saying is it advocates for your rights. This, for your responsibilities. But it's amazing how often people will, again, say, yeah, I know the Bible calls me to that, but you know what? They're unjust. They're unfair. It's not right. And I have rights. And I will fight for my rights, even if it means I don't 
live my responsibilities. So in our culture in particular, rights versus responsibilities, it's complicated. And our run-to often is to enforce rights over responsibilities. Now, here's what I want to say for the Christian. I get the culture around us that doesn't know Jesus. Why would it do anything different? I get it, totally. For the Christian, here's where it's different. The Christian says, at their core, I bow my knee to Jesus because I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what Jesus does and say what Jesus says and act like Jesus acts and, and conduct my life like Jesus would conduct his life. Now, how did Jesus do things? Philippians chapter 2 starts in verse 5 says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and made himself nothing. He came in the form of a servant, in the likeness of a slave. In other words, Jesus could have said, humanity's sinful, I'm God, and it's my right as God to nuke him. But what did he do instead? I will lay aside my rights. I will take responsibility for what they did. I will take responsibility. I will come not as a lofty king on a high throne. I will come as a lowly servant, even as a slave. And I will die for their offense. I didn't sin, but I'll take responsibility for their sin. So Jesus, God, has rights and says, you know what? I'm not going to fight for my rights. I'm going to fight to be responsible. And if I say I want to be like Jesus, then what am I left with? I'm going to focus less on my rights, more on my responsibilities. Because I want to be more like Jesus, right? That's the heart. To be like him everywhere, every way, and everything. Now, I'm not saying this is easy at all. I mean, part of this, the reason this kind of became a thing this week is because I was confronted by my own sense of uh, rights and feeling like something was right or wasn't right or whatever else. And I'm like, man, this is really problematic. Because the Bible doesn't subsidize my sense of rights in the same way that I like to, at least, right? So here's the problem with rights at the core, at the real core. Uh, rights require something very simple. Rights require everybody around me to acknowledge my rights. Correct? In other words, I might have the right to freedom of speech, but everybody around me has to sort of affirm my right to freedom of speech. If they don't, eventually they could change that right. It would no longer be a right. They got what they wanted. I didn't get what I want. And, and they're no longer going to subsidize my rights. My rights are contingent on others wanting to acknowledge my rights and play by those rules. The other problem with this is if somebody doesn't want to acknowledge my rights, how do I have to maintain my rights? I have to enforce them. I have to fight for my rights. Now, maybe on a big scope, like... First Amendment, uh, you, you go, well, that's not something I have to worry about. I'll, I'll bring it down to something that a lot of people have had to experience, uh, divorce. All right, so you go through a divorce, you each have rights, certain parental privilege rights, economic rights, dividing up of property rights, whatever else, but if the other side doesn't want to play by those rules, what do you find yourself having to do? Lawyer up. Fight for your rights, contend for your rights. And I've never seen any situation where each side lawyers up where it goes well. Right? Because they're fighting and attacking and just going to war over because you're saying, you know what, they want to honor my rights, but this is my right, and so I'm going to fight you to make you have to honor my rights. So there's a lot of trying to win, but there's not a lot of trying to win over. Right? This is the foundational problem with the whole scenario. And in a culture where rights are more fought for than responsibilities... People become a little bit more unkind, a little bit more irresponsible, a little bit more nasty, frankly. Right? And it drives us nuts. I mean, think about it. how many times have you said that to your spouse or a friend? Like, man, people just don't take responsibility anymore. Right? You know why you say that? Because everybody lawyers up to fight for rights. People don't like to be responsible because responsibility means personal self-sacrifice. Rights means somebody else sacrifices if I think I'm right. And in the real world, that's fine. In the Christian life, that is a challenge because that is not what we learn from Jesus. In fact, Solzhenitsyn, if you're not familiar with him, he was an um, officer in the Soviet military, ends up in the gulag for decades 
And after he's freed and he comes to the United States from the Soviet Union, he was given a speech, and it was a brilliant speech. He highlighted a couple of really critical things. And one of the things he said was, at the end of it all, I'm not sure what's worse. I think they're equal. Either a country without laws like the Soviet Union, that oppresses people, or a country with laws but also a lot of lawyers that oppresses people. Right? And he's right, because what that means is people don't want to take personal responsibility. They just want to leverage rights and make other people do what they want them to do, whether they're right or not. In fact, this week it was the weirdest thing. I was at Gestapo, and I'm sitting in the booth, and the booth right in front of me, um, uh, a guy comes in with his lawyer, and they're talking about his case. And even though that might have been privileged, protected information... Don't talk so loud at Gestapo. Um, the other side should hunt me down, man. I'm not making a dime. All right, so um, anyway, so they're real loud about it. And I'm listening to this thing, and the guy that, you know, is talking to his lawyer, it was clear. He was drinking. He slapped somebody around. He did the crime. Everything else, the lawyer's listening to him. And then, then at some point, the lawyer jumps in about, well, did the police do this after they took you into custody? He goes, well, no, they didn't do that. Well, the police are wrong. There, we can, we can go ahead and maybe really camp on that, getting this tossed, because of an improper procedure. And I thought, there it is. There it is. It's perfect. Now, I know that's the job of the lawyer, but there's our culture. It doesn't matter if it's right as far as what the guy did. No, it's just if he has rights. It doesn't matter if he's responsible. We just need to protect his rights, even when he's wrong. Right? Now, again, welcome to the United States of America. That's how it works. But we're a part of a kingdom that's much bigger with a value system that's very different. And so we have to look at this and say, all right, what do I fight for? See, what we fight for is less about having rights and more about doing right, acting right, thinking right. We become responsible. We don't want to run off every time we feel there's injustice to us and say, well, here's the rules, here's the regulations, here's the ethics, here's the procedure, here's the etiquette. Here's the handbook, the rule book, the whatever else, the training manual, the bumper sticker, whatever we turn to, right? Because the Christian life is not a call to fairness as far as being treated fairly. It's only a call to godliness, regardless of how we're treated. That's it. That's all. I'm not saying that is an easy task. Don't misread me. I'm not. But it's way more about us looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, what should I do? Versus looking at others and saying, what should they have done? Right? See, that's the context Paul has in mind. He understands the Christian calling in the world. He's not as focused on the world's chaos when he writes then to masters and slaves. The world's always going to be unfair. It's always going to be unjust. It's always going to mistreat people. It's always going to mishandle things. So again, we get back to the big picture. How do we face injustice? How do we fight for our responsibilities more than we fight for our rights? It is to that that he says, bond servants... Obey your earthly masters. Or if we gave it a modern context, we'd say employees, obey your earthly bosses. Or we could say students, obey your teachers, your volunteers, obey your coordinators, your players, obey your coaches. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's all the same applicably to us. It's saying be responsible. Take responsibility. Don't complain about others' lack thereof. You just be responsible. I'm to be responsible. We do this, it says, continuing, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Fear and trembling, very simple. Respect those over you. Respect them, right? And this doesn't matter if you're paid or you're a volunteer. Respect those over you. Because that's what we do sometimes. We say, well, uh, the, the level of consequence to disrespect a boss is different than the level of consequence to disrespect somebody who is a director in a volunteer organization. Not to Jesus it's not. Jesus doesn't care if you're making a paycheck or not. Right? Jesus cares that we handle ourselves in a certain way. We show respect to those who are over us. Regardless if that's volunteer, paid, whatever it is. It's all the same to him. More than that, he says, do so with a sincerity of heart. This word sincerity in the original language meant without wax. Somebody would build a statue and the statue might have cracks or some pock marks in it. So what a bad sculptor would do would fill in those cracks and pock marks with wax and then try to pawn it as solid stone. But for the real deal, you put a stamp in the bottom that said, without wax, sincere. 
right? And that's what we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be kind of filling in the cracks with something less than what's true. He says, be sincere, right? Do it without resentment or criticism or anger or undermining. I mean, don't, don't do that. Whatever you're doing in volunteerism, in work, in sports, in school, man, approach it sincerely as you would Christ. You treat it just like you treat Jesus. In fact, here's a great rule of thumb. And I don't even know what rule of thumb means, but um, it's another weird, like, all right, whatever, my thumb, rule one. Um, Maybe that's what it is. Hey, look at that, discovery. All right, so rule one thumb, all right? You, you, You simply look and say, all right, I have a job. I have a responsibility. I volunteer. I have ownership of my church in a lay capacity, whatever it is. Um, How would Jesus do this job? Right? This is real simple. How would Jesus do this job? How would Jesus do my job? Well, if this is how I think Jesus would do my job, I want to do my job like Jesus would. It's that simple. Right? It's that simple. How would Jesus be a teacher? How would Jesus dig this ditch? How would Jesus engineer this vehicle? How would Jesus keep this home? How would Jesus raise these children? Whatever it is, how would Jesus do it? I want to be like Jesus, so I want to do what Jesus would do in this circumstance. That's the heart behind this. Paul goes on to say this heart is played out not in the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. I think we understand this idea of eye service, especially if you were a teenage boy in gym class in high school. Right? Coach comes in, all right, everybody drop, start doing push-ups. Coach is watching, one, two, three, four. Coach turns around, five, six, seven, eight, nine, turns back to look, ten, eleven, twelve, right? Every teenage boy did that in high school as soon as the coach turned his back. Except for that overly buff kid that had an IQ of about 25, all right? So... That wasn't nice of me. That was horrible, all right? Remember how I talked about the tongue a couple of weeks ago? There you go, all right? So, but I service, right? So when they're looking, I work. When they're not, I don't, right? Paul says, man, you don't, you don't do that. You don't, you don't pretend like, hey, man, if my boss isn't around, I can hang out the water cooler longer. I can just get online and see what's going on in the news and sports and when I'm selling on eBay or whatever else. Just, you can't do that. Don't do that. You don't do it. Just waiting for them to be watching you. And when they turn, you do something different. He says, nah, that's not the way it's done. When you do that, you're just being a people pleaser, right? You want them pleased when they see you. You don't care if they're pleased when they're not looking because your only goal is to please them in the real time. Or maybe people-pleasing can be something a little bit different, too. People-pleasing can be that thing where, you know what, um, you're so fixated on pleasing your boss or whatever that they're more important than God. They get more of your focus, more of your firsts. They get more of a loyal sense of your future, like, oh, my future is in jeopardy without my employer or my company or my boss or whatever else. That can be people-pleasing. Some people-pleasers are just those suck-ups that drive you crazy. Right? Like, oh, Mr. So-and-so, you're so awesome today. Your tie is marvelous. You're like, oh, please, stop. Um, now, if they really mean it, that's cool. If they're suck-ups, it drives us crazy. Don't be a suck-up. That's the bottom line, right? Not people-pleasing. It says, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, right? In fact, if anything, we have to look at this and say, whether I work in the marketplace or in the community or in the home or at school or on the field, I do all of this for God, right? Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, right? Here's a great one, right? Another rule of thumb. I guess this would be now index finger. Um, Rule of index finger. Uh, When somebody says, uh, so who do you work for? You work for Microsoft? Do you work for Boeing? Do you work for CDK? Do you work for Do All Fitness? Whatever else. Here's what you have to have in your mind. I work for Jesus, I work for Jesus, right? He's your boss. He's my boss. The elders and that kind of thing, they're not really my boss. Jesus is my boss. If I'm thinking humans are my boss, then, you know, I'm going to have a very different approach as opposed to my boss is watching 24-7. He's always got that security camera on me to watch. Changes everything. Jesus is my, my boss. 
And again, I want to stress, it's not just in the jobs that pay the bills. It's in the jobs that you volunteer for. It's in the jobs that you donate your time to. It's in the things where, again, there is not a salary attached to it. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, God the Father through him, heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You do it for Jesus. Who do I work for? Jesus. How do I work? As Jesus himself would work. You look at Jesus the employee and you look at Jesus the boss and you say, both of those is what's important to me. That's how we do it. And so what we don't want to have escape our lips is to say, hey, I'm a volunteer. What do you expect of me? I don't know, whatever Jesus expects, that's what you give. Or if you say, whoa, wait, wait, I'm clocked out. It's not my job description. I'm doing the job of three people here, man. That's not fair, right? My teacher's an idiot. They can't teach. Whatever thing we might say, we've got to take responsibility and say, no, no, no. I work for Jesus, and I work like Jesus. But the good news is that when I work for Jesus and like Jesus, I'm on his clock. Verse 8, we do this knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. I mean, I love this, right? Because you might look and say, you know what, my boss isn't paying me well, or I serve at the church, but they do not respect all that I do, or maybe you volunteer for 4-H or Boy Scouts, and you're like, people are always overlooking me, nobody treats me properly or right, uh, my teacher's an idiot, my students are idiots, whatever thing we might say. What we need to say instead is, wait, I'm on Jesus' clock no matter what. I'm not, I'm not, not getting the short end of the stick. I'm not. He's going to pay out in the end. What a blessing, Right? So if you're a mom in the home, don't worry. You're on Jesus' clock. If you have a job, they don't pay you what you're worth, you're on Jesus' clock. Right? Your teacher's burnt out and they're not teaching well, don't worry, you're on Jesus' clock. Your students are burners and they don't learn well. You're on Jesus' clock. It all plays the same way. The key is attitude. right? Attitude. I'm doing this for Jesus. And Jesus is going to pay out. Keep in mind that God redeems us by grace in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. We're saved by grace in Christ alone, not by works. We don't do anything to get salvation at all. We don't do anything to earn salvation. But God does reward based on works from the grace that he's given for himself. So in other words, you know what? I'm saved purely by the work of Jesus. But once saved, I'm called to good works. And in those good works, God rewards. And that's what Paul is saying here, right? When you do what you do, focus more on your responsibilities than your rights, God is going to reward you for that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, for the Christian, that means, hey, you're saved. You're getting in no matter what. The difference is going to be if you live this whole life not for Christ but in your own strength, for your own agenda and your own goals, you could become the richest man or woman on the planet but you're going to die and you're going to be a street sweeper for eternity. And there's somebody else that, you know what, they were a street sweeper in this life and they did it all for the glory of the Lord and they didn't worry about whether they were praised or appreciated or paid the right salary and they're ruling nations in eternity. That is true. Right? What we do in this life has some effect in the life to come as far as what we receive from the Lord for those who are saved. Now, for those that don't know Jesus, you also are earning, but in this case, you earn wrath. Right? Everybody's earning. Right? Heaven, good news to the capitalists, is more capitalistic than communist. There you go. It's a freebie for showing up. Right? Because you think, oh, it's all the same for everybody. No, it's not. Heaven is not the same for everybody. Eternity is not the same for everybody. This is why Paul encourages, Jesus encourages, store up treasure in heaven. Do it for eternity. That's what we do. Now, what if you're a boss or a manager, volunteer director or teacher or a coach, whatever else? Verse 9. It says, Masters, do the same to them. What's the regulation? You go back to what was instructed of Servants servants were told basically to be respectful, sincere, conscientious, and pleasant. Masters, how were they supposed to be according to Paul? Respectful, sincere, conscientious, and pleasant. Regulation, right? What Paul is saying is, you know what? People aren't property. People aren't products. 
People are not even a part of the company. You ever notice how people say that? Well, he's a part of the company. Treats the company like an engine and you as a part. No. All of it is about people. Treat people like people, not property, products, or just a part. Right? That's why he says, masters do the same thing, and on top of respect, sincerity, conscientiousness, and pleasant, stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. Now, does not mean you can't deal with actual problems or performance issues? It doesn't mean that. You can deal with both of those things. Effectively, you need to be focused on how you deal with that. But the key is you don't want to use intimidation, fear, or negativity to get those things done. Right? I mean, if you have an employee and you're like, the only way I can motivate them is to perpetually terrify them. That's not good. Or if you have players and you're that gruff, angry coach that they're just never, there's never the sense of you're pleased by your players. And they're fearful all the time. He would say, no, 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 stop your threatening, right? Can't just say, well, you know, it's just business. It's how it works. You know, we don't stop being Christians as soon as we enter the workplace or as soon as we go into some context where we're in charge. Uh, we're Christians all the time. It doesn't matter the environment. So we don't use threatening. Paul says, here's the ultimate reason why. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Jesus doesn't care about our status, our degree, our salary, our achievements, except to the degree that we use those for him. That's it, right? You don't understand, though. I was a CEO. It'd be great. How did you use your status of a CEO, as being a CEO, to advance what I care about? That's all he's going to ask. No different than, hey, I had no degree, didn't even graduate high school, worked hard my whole life, tried to honor you in the process. He'd say, well done. That is, that's what I'm looking for. It's not what we have. It's how we use it, right? Now, if you are a boss a manager, you have some level of power in your position, well, with great power comes much. Yeah, there's that word again. Not rights, responsibility. What made Superman so amazing? That he was super powerful? No, it's that he had tremendous character with that power. He was responsible with with that which was given to him. Spider-Man, same thing, was responsible with that which was given to him. Christians, it's us being responsible with that which was given to us. It's not what we are due, it's what we do. That's the difference. And so we work like Jesus, we work for Jesus, we work in Jesus. Jesus.